Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the AEW Dynamite Review. I'm Adam Wilborn from What Culture, joined by the Dudley Boys of What Culture, Michael Hampler and Michael Sidgwick, here to review everything that happened on last night's episode of AEW Dynamite. But before we get into it, if you're a fan of this sort of thing, make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling on either iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from for daily wrestling podcasts, where we not only review AEW Dynamite, but also AEW Rampage. NXT, Raw, SmackDown pay-per-views. We have interviews, roundtable discussions, and a round of the week complete with a bloody quiz, of course, on WrestleCulture. As I said, though, joined by Hamplin Sidgwick to review Dynamite and for a show that's sort of, I mean, lots of stuff happened, obviously, but for a show that's effectively secondary for AEW this week, Sidge, quite an eventful one. I devoured this episode of Dynamite with the same appetite as Ric Flair eating twat on a train. (laughs) I thought this was fantastic, not without its lows, but mostly just an absolutely exquisite two hours of pro wrestling television delivered by a white hot product that promises to get even hotter in the coming weeks. Happy wrestling fan here. At the peak of Leo Messi's powers, I went to the new camp. Um, We were on a stag in Barcelona and... Barcelona scored six in the first half. And I was like, oh my God, this is what it must be like to support just one of the most incredible football teams in the world, playing the most beautiful game. And I couldn't wait for the second half. And then people started leaving after like 60, 70 minutes, grumbling like some of the regulars, the Barcelona season ticket holders, because they'd only managed to score one. That was this dynamite for me. Like an unreal first hour, like one of the all-time great first hours in a show that's like pretty amazing at first hours. This was one of the very best kind of thought thought it fell off quite a bit. Um, It had the annoying dynamite sag that I think has been, I genuinely, I think is a formatting issue at this point. I think it's happened enough, sincerely, that I would like them to take a look at it because I thought this like, it was a big, big drag and me and Sidgwick are going to disagree slightly on the quality of the main event. But it's all forgivable because the first hour was just like Mm. God tier stuff, God tier. Also now like that it's got to the stage with you, Hamlet, that you won't tweet like that. I don't know, five to midnight. Like, you know what? I might, I might stay up now. You can just do like a tease, like Punk did with those, was it the three summers of Punk that he tweeted about <laughs> on his Instagram or whatever it was. You just send a photo of some cereal in the bloody supermarket. <laughs> and everyone's like, it's happening, lads. It's happening. Brilliant. I don't disagree with Hanford's take, but I thought I was the one with like exacting standards. 
I think Hamlet all along has taken the all elite wrestling thing a little bit too seriously. <laughs> uh, this way, was an elite. So yeah, big complaints here. But I do agree that the third quarter, not like quarter hour, but like the third quarter of a two-hour show is often meh. And sometimes, more often than not, in fact, certain genders are thrown out to just <laughs> get into that boring more. But yeah, I guess it depends on how much you love the main event, but I loved it, but we'll get into it. I feel like I should do a new segment as well on this review where I read out the performative tweet of the week where someone goes, Sting no selling, that's never happened before. Because I feel like I won't mention it otherwise. I was jaw dropped seeing that this morning of like, well, they've buried 2.0 and that's literally never happened to Sting in wrestling before. He's no sold a move and fired up. So what did you see this, Sidge? I don't care. I mean, here's the thing. Like, it isn't... I love 2.0. I love 2.0 precisely because they know their roles better than most who play these roles. They are not serious guys who are going to mount a threat to anything. They are opportunistic. We saw this on the very same show. They are opportunistic guys who play this comedic role of toughs who are way harder in their heads than they are in real life. (laughs) Sting is, in contrast, playing the role of an actual icon. And I don't know how they've done this because it is magical, but they've done it nonetheless. Sting is booked to make grown adults feel things that kids did in 1988. (laughs) How can you be such a stupid little pedantic twat to think it's not cool? I do not understand it. Get your brain rewired to understand joy. You don't have to frame everything, is it? They're getting buried. I should worry about that. Just don't be a little arsehole and you might live a little. You know what I'm going to tell these people? I'm going to go and touch grass. Touch, <laughs> touch, touch sting. <laughs> touch sting's grass. Uh, right, let's start at the beginning of the show because the show started with Moxley and Kingston making their entrance, swaggering their way to the ring when they were jumped by the real stars of the show, that being uh, 2.0 and uh, Daniel Garcia. Uh, they, they attack them, I think with a pipe or something. They lay them out, basically. Uh, and uh, Matt Lee g- grabs a mic and uh, taunts Darby Allen saying, come and get a taste, basically. Uh, let's start their match right now. Let's have that as the opener, effectively. Lights go out. Sting makes his entrance. Uh, and when Darby... Uh, goes to make his entrance. He actually attacks them in the ring from behind. Very heelish move uh, with his skateboard. Uh, and then we got a wild brawl. It's obviously a tornado, Texas tornado tag match this. So they brawled into the crowd. Uh, again, Danny Garcia uh, assisting 2.0, effectively helping them out with the numbers game. I also, I don't think I realised this before, but I think, I think, and I know I'm biased, 2.0 may have the best named finisher in all of wrestling. Two for the show, ah, just perfect stuff. And they uh, they hit it onto a concrete, like, dip in the roof on Darby Allen, uh, just as like an appetizer, effectively. So they uh, they drag Sting back towards the ring, but Darby Allen, in incre- he made it look so easy. And it, it really isn't to just walk along, effectively, a little concrete beam that's next to the stairs. He does that, dives onto 2.0 and Garcia, and Eddie Kingston comes out and goes... Come here, Danny. And they brawl to the back to even out the numbers game. Uh, they get a table out, Darby Allen and Sting. Uh, but 2.0, get back into it. And, oh, my God. 
suplex Darby Allen onto this wheels of his skateboard on the ramp. Oh, and they could still continuously produce things that strike me as far worse than stuff that probably is. You know, when they did like the the Eddie Kingston um, alcohol swab thing on on Moxley's back, that made me wince far more than Drew McIntyre smashing a chair off someone's back 40-odd times or whatever it was. Anyway, uh, Sting fires back up, fights off both uh, 2.0, uh, do the old 10 punches in the corner, but uh, uh, Jeff Parker cuts him off, and they double powerbomb him through the table, to which he immediately... No sells it, pops back up and just starts battering him again. Uh, they turn around into a Darby Allen drop kick that feeds them perfectly into a double uh, Scorpion death drop, and then he locks them both in a Scorpion death lock for a double submission. And uh, as Hamlet alluded to, Sidge, a white hot opener to this show. I mean, it was just absolutely exquisite, exquisite professional wrestling television that made you feel things that you thought you deserted in childhood. That's the magic of Sting. They've preserved the magic of Sting to a level that is just absolutely unbelievable. I can't comprehend how good a job they've done with this Sting character. This is a continuation of that. And what was also absolutely superb is just this other exploration of how great this Sting and Darby Allen team is together. The idea is that they are kind of enigmatic. They both have this certain otherworldly aura about them and how better to articulate that than Darby Allen just walking cool as you like down that beam right a diagonal um, entranceway deal he looked like Sting he didn't look like he was cosplaying as Sting he didn't look like Sting's son as wholesome as that little beat has been he looked as enigmatic and as iconic and as cool and otherworldly as Sting in that moment it was perfectly agented to extract the most from Sting. That bump on the skateboard, as he said, was tremendous. The finisher into the ceiling was tremendous. They could not have done this any better. The noise, the volume, just an entire arena full of people just marking out. It was so infectious. It was so well done. And yes, Sting is going to fire up, having taken a bump through a table, because the idea is... In AEW canon, he's this like, he's not a supernatural guy, but he's a supernatural presence because he's a legend of the industry. It's so respectful. It's the opposite of WrestleMania 31. It is, in a word, magic. Yeah. Um, I was thinking after the, like this was, I, I, I was incapable of thinking after this, to be honest. Most of the first hour just left me in a daze. Um, but like reflecting on it more this morning, I was thinking about what a tremendous use this was of something that we'd gotten really used to in the pandemic era, which was the first segment that doesn't have adverts. So therefore you, you give it the best match because that's kind of all you can do. You can't really use the crowd. You can't feed off anything in particular in empty dailies. So just have the best match you can and enjoy that 15 minutes of time. This was something totally different because you do have crowds and you do have this really unique environment. This wasn't a 15 minute technical classic. This was just a perfect use of a quarter of an hour of TV time, a perfect use. Um, impromptu matches, which, you know, for balance, when we're critical of them, it's because, well, he hadn't outbooked. This was booked. It's just they've just turned the format upside down and they want this match now. And it's down to the people in the back who have decided to get a taste of 2.0, that they've now got to deal with that and put something else in the slot wherever this was planned for. This is how you do impromptu matches, like the heels 
being idiotic enough to think that by getting the jump on these baby faces and then having Derby and Sting maybe not be fully prepared, like Sting came out without his jacket, didn't he? And it's like, I believed that they weren't quite ready for the match yet, but they're going to do it anyway. And they're still going to back them because they're the heroes. That's the whole point of the story. So from a presentation point of view, it was just nailed on. Um, yeah, it's funny that like you both flagged it, but the takeaway spot, one of the like oh, wincing takeaway spots for me was that skateboard bump, the falling on the uh, the trucks, was it? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. I had friends that skated while I stayed inside and played Tony Hawk's. Like the just it, you could feel it, and sometimes those are so much more um, powerful than stuff you can't ever imagine the pain of. I'll never quite be able to imagine what it's like to have a. Uh, drawing pins on the bottom of the skateboard driven into my back but I could sort of get that like oh just falling on an uneven surface really unpleasant 2.0 like going from strength to strength probably suggests that there's they're going to be on the next thing or they're going to be a push tag team anytime soon they're not in terms of winning the titles but this is a role that they can absolutely milk way 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 more there's loads of juice left in this fruit for these um, you built really effectively to uh, in, I don't I, I'm not overstating this a dream match as far as I'm concerned in Daniel Garcia versus John Moxley, like they have just pulled something magic out of their ass for Rampage, absolutely inspired um, in the way that this was all set up with the beatdown on Moxley in Kingston, further to piss off John Moxley to inform that promo later on, and I cannot wait to get to that. Sublime, God tier, just you- all brilliant. Before we move on, I should very quickly point out that I had a little grumble at the start of this. I know it was a justifiable impromptu match because it was booked at the time, it was allocated, blah, 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 blah. I still didn't like the threat. I don't like the sanctity of this sports card emulation, but they did a masterful job of doing it if they had to do it. And the reason why they did it primarily, it revealed itself later on with that goddamn first dance graphic. Um, So they did one of the worst tropes in pro wrestling history and made it iconic. That's the power of AEW for you. I do hope, uh, Hamlet, you were eating uh, Rice Krispies with this because that Sting no-sell got a snap, crackle and a huge bap. Uh, right. <laughs> Let's move on. Uh, we Let's... knew Sammy Guevara was set to make a major announcement. We assumed it would be post-match with Sean Spears, but it actually happened uh, prior um, to to the show as they were taping Darkening Elevation. He proposed to his girlfriend, Pammy, or soon to be Pammy Guevara, I suppose. Um, and she uh, said, yes, of course, congratulations to both of them. And then they had a little promo with Sean Spears and Tully Blanchard, who excellently healed up by saying, well, you know, I'll tell you what, I'll let Pam be a, an honorary member of the Pinnacle for one night because she can be on top. Hey, you go, he's talking about Jack and his fiance, basically. Set on his cat. So uh, the match saw uh, Spears immediately try and jump Sammy Guevara as he was soaking in. It makes sense. All of this makes sense. Sammy Guevara was obviously going to, you know, A, enjoy his entrance because he just got engaged earlier and, and people are congratulating for that. But also, as uh, Sid and Hamlet alluded to, Yesterday, he was going to get a, a massive reaction as well. So if you're a heel, you're going to try and jump him. But he was aware of that. He uh, noticed uh, Sean Spears. I'm not sure if he quite heard the footsteps this time because it was quite loud in there. But regardless, yes, they brawl on the ramp. Um, Guevara hits a beautiful flip dive off the ramp to, to the sort of ringside area. Um, beat Spears down. Um, and uh, Spears recovers by sending him into the steps. And then Tully Blanchard just helps him hit a pile driver. 
and uh, I realised the bell hadn't rung yet because I was so confused for a split second there. When the match actually started, of course, when Tully went to do a second one of those, he was ejected from ringside. Uh, but Spears continues the beat down, taunts uh, Sammy's new fiance. Uh, but Guevara comes back with an enziguri um, and avoids the. Uh, oh, sorry, Spears avoids the double springboard moonsault and uh, chops him as they head into the break. When they come back, uh, they both beautifully spring to the top rope. Uh, have a little moment together. Spears flips him off, so Guevara hits a top rope cutter for a near fall. Spears then uh, countered a top rope Hurricane Rana into an avalanche C4 for another great near fall. And uh, in the midst of all this, by the way, uh, they'd set up a barricade between the ring apron and the tables. And later on, Sammy Guevara escaped another C4 attempt on the apron and uh, hit a Death Valley driver through the barricade uh, that had been propped up. Then climbed up the ropes, hits the 6.30 sent on, but Spears, to the shock of everyone in this arena, kicks out. And so Guevara pulls down his knee pad, knees to the face, GTH on Spears for the victory. And post-match, Sammy and Pammy have a lovely kiss. What do you think, Hamlet? Just, like, sublimely executed silliness. There's that maxim that you hear a lot from um, wrestlers that they've heard from their coaches that... People aren't necessarily going to remember the moves as much as they're going to remember how those moves made them feel. And I think this was a like a perfect example of why that still matters. Um, if you broke this down uh, move by move, there'd probably be quite a lot to criticise in terms of what was not no-sold, but what was kicked out of. It was reminiscent of a, a particular era of Ring of Honour where guys were dying, but then the finisher at the end that is less effective than the like spiked German suplex that you saw two minutes earlier. But delivered effectively and built in front of the right crowd or in that right moment or whatever, you can absolutely get away with it. And that's what this did. Um, I, I Sean Spears might have had better matches in AEW, but I don't think he's had more heated ones. And I would include mm. the Chris Jericho match from the first Labour in that this was more heated. Um, I don't know how they're going to be able to sell out a show in Houston next time because Sammy Guevara winning here has surely killed the town. If that's what I've, I've watched enough WWE to know that. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, like the, the way... Until the finish, ironically enough, with the, the go-to-sleep variant, although busting him open probably helped the effectiveness <laughs> of that. They'd done that thing of he has absorbed too much to kick out from, that this would be the thing to put him down. But you can allow for it because the atmosphere was just, again, white hot. Um, this was, as I, I, I can't say it was obviously as great as what it must have felt like to be in that building, but it felt nearly as great as a viewing experience at home. I noticed they were using seemingly two hard cameras. So you've got this really nice cut for the barricade spot in particular, where you got to watch it from the most effective view. And they didn't use that again much in the night. And I thought they've prepped this. They've actually thought about where you're going to position this for this to look and feel the most violent. I love it when guys come off the top rope to the floor and it feels like they just jumped off the edge of the world. You know, the mm. Undertaker Triple H choke slam spot before they show you the aerial view. That kind of thing is super effective. And we got that here. And again, it's just to maximize everybody's enjoyment of this wild and quite dangerous stuff. Mixed in a bit of pantomime with the Tully Blanchard stuff earlier on. And a hometown babyface gets the win and kisses his girl. Like, tale as old as time stuff using dangerous 2021 violence. Like an inspired coming together of different worlds. Loved it. I have to pretty much echo those thoughts exactly. My take on this match was... It was fundamentally flawed if you want to be a boring bastard about it. Like, <laughs> Aubrey Edwards had a problem with Tully assisting the pile driver, but a guardrail. Ah, it's, it's Sammy's from here. It's fine. Like, the top rope 
cutters and top rope variations of finishers not finishing the match. Like, it was exhilarating. I don't care if it was too much. Like, give me all the excess. I was absolutely bang up for it, as was the crowd. Why not give the crowd what they want? It was the most exhilarating Sean Spears match imaginable. If you want to be generous um, to those kinds of spots, they've been building this one for forever. But absolutely forever, of course, even if it wasn't positioned in the main event, Guevara and Spears were going to treat it like their main event, their biggest thing that's happened to their pro wrestling careers all year. Of course, with that mindset, they were going to find that extra bit of balls and guts to kick out of stuff that they ordinarily wouldn't. And I'll tell you what, like, they did a shocked kick out phase, and it was the most justified one I've seen since 2009. <laughs> they measured the drama so perfectly. I couldn't believe he kicked out that 630. Mm. It doesn't not make sense, given what I've just said. Sean Spears this is his biggest match of the year. You're going to find that resolve. I thought this was absolutely fantastic, electrifying. And Sean Spears, like, he needs a special bit of praise. This was Sammy's night. Sammy was the guy who brought much of the excitement to it. But when Sean Spears joined the pinnacle, I think everyone said the exact same thing. Oh, he's the odd one out. He doesn't feel like he's on top of anything. Sean Spears has been class. Mm. Wonderful verbal delivery, proper great heel stuff. His catch for that incredible Sammy somersault sent on cannonball, whatever, was unreal. He looked like he'd taken something awful. And in fact, he protected Sammy Guevara from something worse. Just fantastic, electrifying stuff, this was. I think there is an argument to be made that Sean Spears is the most effective member of the pinnacle in pro wrestling terms. I don't mean in wins and losses, obviously. But they've needed a guy to take some pretty hellacious beatings um, that have, like to make Sammy Guevara specifically look good, if you use this and um, Stadium Stampede as an example. But he was believable for one night with a weapon in his hand against Chris Jericho. The matches have meant a great deal more than whatever FTR have been up to. Um, Wardlow remains kind of like a background character. Maybe I'm excluding MJF in this, but I think he's felt like a super effective, stable running guy in a way that the rest of the pinnacle sort of haven't. He's mm. featured as well. He's, he's been featured and that's important. You know, like how, how a stable are represented on television and he's kind of reminding you that they exist some weeks. Uh, Christian Cage was backstage with Tony Schiavone, uh, immediately interrupted by Don Callis, who just patronises the hell out of him, basically, talking about giving him his first break and congratulating him on his win and his opportunity. But it doesn't really matter because Omega's going to win the big one for the AEW World title uh, at All Out, of course. Uh, but Christian said he's in Omega's head now and he's flaunting these two new belts that he's got. Uh, and Omega is terrified he's going to take the AEW World Championship. And Christian concludes by calling Don Callis a carny piece of shh, of course. Um, and then we cut back to the ring where Dan Lambert is back, but he's brought some UFC friends with him, particularly popped huge for these two, Andre Orlovsky and Junior Dos Santos, two men you do not mess about with, basically. Uh, and he said that that's the reason why the UFC people didn't get involved last time. They weren't allowed, but this time he's put a call into Dana White. And uh, he talked about being silent. He talked about these millennials being soft and triggered and cancel culture and all that. But he said, now 
Uh, JDS and Andre Olovsky are ready for a fight. He talked to the crowd saying, AW is not the answer to your professional wrestling prayers. Uh, AW's got a roster full of wannabe tough guys who can't wrestle and the fans are only here because it's the only good part of their lives. Out comes Lance Archer, of course, but before he can get into the ring, before even the UFC guys can uh, get their hands on him, the men of the year, Scorpio Sky, Ethan Page, beat him down. Particularly enjoyed Ethan Page's effectively. Hey, Dan. Give us a call because he did a bit of oh yeah, like as he walked back <laughs> up the ramp. What did you think to all this, Sid? Uh, weird, but not not great. Like Lambert's promo was great. It's reassuring that they see someone who whinges about cancel culture being a heel. That was nice. I don't know if it's company value, but I'd rather it wasn't not a company value. Um great that the heel was saying all of that toxic rubbish. His delivery remains outstanding. It's a nice little vehicle to reheat Lance Archer in theory, having lost the um, United States IWGP title. I think there's a major disconnect between men of the year, these JQ fashionistas, like aligning with these like total hard bastards, like hard to extremes that we can't even fathom. So that's odd. (laughs) Well, I've got faith in Tony Khan's ability to put people together. Like for Christ's sake, We've just got Garcia in 2.0. Like, Lambert in the Men of the Year could be the next four horsemen, <laughs> given how great that um, Tony Khan is putting people together in units. This is fun. I remain unconvinced. Somehow, after um, Fighter Fest, or Fight for the Fallen, or whatever it was, I remain unconvinced that this is it for Archer, that he's got a genuinely strong future. But I do like that they've picked this thread back up. Because if you recall, Archer was having a little semblance of a feud with the men of the year before the men of the year fully went over to um, Darby Allen to try and stifle his rise. So they've picked something back up because AEW can be justifiably accused of dropping some stuff and it never getting picked back up to a little bit of annoyance. Rebel Lance Archer versus Pac. Where did Shaq go? We were talking about where Shaq went. <laughs> who attacked John Moxley? That was another one. You know what I mean? Who attacked John Moxley? When were Lance Archer and Pack going to have that fight? Because they didn't really feel like they were coexisting, to use a rubbish WWE term. So I enjoyed the continuity. I enjoyed the promo more than the direction. I am. Um, thank you for those names, Wilborn. I couldn't see those MMA guys because my eyes were rolling in the back of my head as Dan Lambert was talking. <laughs> Jesus Christ, that guy is so much money. Um, I now want... After everybody's brilliant, everyone's got a different pitch and they're all great. Um, fantasy booking of CM Punk's debut. I want Dan Lambert to rip Chicago to shreds. That's what I want. <laughs> I want him to absolutely torture. Is it for the preview? Because <laughs> I love him so much. And I also, do, this promo was so good. Shut your fat mouth and go back to looking up some real creepy sh- on the dark web. Um, so good that it was too good for the stuff that followed. I did like there was a slight disconnect. My energy levels were too high because he talked me into whatever feud like he wanted. Pretty much, it was such a high standard. Except but for this one, <laughs> like on reflection, it's a bit like you know how um, after he got signed, the kind of I'm sure people would have liked it at points, but like Eddie Kingston felt like he was kind of scrambling around as a heel, didn't he? Before they got him with Moxley, before they got to that point, there was a few times and it was like oh, this is not really hitting as like the heights of the original Cody promo and everything else. And they got there with him because he's just too gifted a talker to not find where he fits. And I have absolute faith. If Lambert even wants it or needs it, by the way, 
because he's got a world outside of AEW. American top team is his thing. And this can be a thing he special guests in effectively and just comes in and just scorches the earth when he's there. Um, but they'll probably be a, a better fit for the, the Dan Lambert feud if and when they find it. Um, and yeah, sort of me and Sidgwick were talking about this this morning. I'd like this is me saying this, not him, because I don't want to put it on Sidgwick. Like I felt this reminded me a lot of the Cody promo, but you put in the words in the like right guy's mouth. There was like a lot of slight bit of discomfort in the first Cody I didn't promo. Say that. You said that. No, that's what I'm saying. I said this. Yes. Like the first Agogo promo, the next day it was a bit like, oh, do you want your baby face company representative really saying those things for, for, for this company? And Lambert saying it is perfect. There'll be no mm. backlash because he's being positioned as a heel saying these things because these are not virtuous people that say these things and not necessarily the most virtuous of us. Uh, Jericho's backstage. Uh, he's excited about finally being able to get his hands on MJF. Uh, he's overcome all the adversity of the labors of Jericho because tonight he wins the prize. He might not be able to use the Judas effect or have his song play, but he's got 5,000 fans in attendance tonight who's going to sing him to the ring. Uh, tonight, Jericho finally gets his revenge. He ends it by saying, Jericho up, my jerk-off friend down. Little Simon Miller reference for you there, Michael Hamlet. Yes, absolutely. Love the content and nothing but respect for it. Look, he had to do something to pop us on this review because he was following Dan Lambert. He's not daft. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Before we go any further though, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, we all carry around different stresses. They can be big life worries or just, you know, little things like your favorite wrestler not being used properly. The thing is, when we keep them bottled up, it really can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. It is really helpful, too, for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. Therapy basically empowers you to be the best version of yourself. So why not give better help? A try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and best of all, suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash whatculture today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash whatculture. Right, let's get to the uh, AW Tag Team title match. It was uh, the Young Bucks defending them against Jurassic Express, of course. Early on in the match, it is about Jungle Boy getting isolated. Uh, you know, brief stints of Luchasaurus getting in the ring, but they were saving him really for the for the hot tag. Um, 
despite the books trying to overwhelm Jungle Boy with the numbers game, he hits a Hurricane Rana off the apron to the floor. Um, but uh, Matt takes him out with a running drop kick and then dives into Luchasaurus as well. Finally, as we come back from the break, Luchasaurus gets uh, the hot tag after Jungle Boy hits that rebound Larry of his and uh, just go, goes wild, of course. And Jungle Boy concludes by hitting a huge superplex of Luchasaurus' Luchasaurus's shoulders for a near fall. Naturally, Brandon Cutler at one point tries to interfere, but Luchasaurus hits the tail whip, a cyclone kick, and then a double choke slam on both books before uh, an assisted cutter for Jungle Boy. Uh, sorry, assisted cutter as Jungle Boy ran interference, uh, got a ne- fantastic near fall again. Jurassic Express go for their finisher, but the Young Bucks counter it, hit a double super kick on Jungle Boy, and then a sort of indie taker on Jungle Boy and a sim- simultaneous sent on onto Luchasaurus, who's down another near fall there. Uh, Marco stunts trying to get him back into this, but how comes Kenny Omega wearing a chick magnet t-shirt this week, twats him with a chair, and it looks like we're going to see a repeat of what they wanted to do, of course, uh, when the uh, when the Impact World title was on the line. They slide a chair in, uh, but Christian runs out. He fights Omega to the back, and Jungle Boy hits a brain buster on the chair. It looks like Jurassic Express are finally going to win the tag titles, um, and the Elite have cost themselves a title yet again. But Nick dives in to break up the pin at the last second. Um, he gets thrown out onto the ramp. Jurassic Express hit their finisher. But again, Nick dives in at the last second just to break it up. And then just everyone, all the people that the elite bring out with them, which was commented on as they made their entrance again, um, get fought off by Jungle Boy. Luchasaurus hits a moonsault altar, everyone on the outside. But as uh, Matt's getting uh, hit with a backslide by, uh, by Jungle Boy, Nick slides in, pushes him out of it. They immediately hit the double BTE trigger thing for the victory and post-match. The elite murder everyone, Jurassic Express and Christian. Uh, Tom Callis stamps, stamps on Christian and sells himself. <laughs> sells himself. Uh, and Omega hits the one winged angel, as was promised earlier by Don Callis, although that was meant to be all out, of course. But as a sort of sneak preview, Omega hits the one winged angel on Christian to conclude this. Oh, I'm breathless just talking about this, Sige. Uh, I had an epiphany when I finished watching this match. The Young Bucks, who I rate as the greatest tag team of all time, are even better than I thought. They've got this unbelievable knack in this just hyper-entertaining heel role of making virtually every single tag team they're in the ring with, I want them to win so goddamn much. Moxley and Kingston, like I thought that was one of the best tag team matches of the last however many years at Double or Nothing. And I was a little good, like legit shouldn't feel like this is an adult gutted because they didn't win. Because I really wanted them to win because the Young Bucks are so great at making you want the other team in the ring to win. This is absolutely fantastic. Nick Jackson being an arsehole, an irresistible arsehole by doing a backflip out of the ring to no one to show off his superior athleticism. And then Jungle Boy out-athletes him with this absolutely wonderful spree of offence. The near falls at the end of this, Nick Jackson's timing was absolutely precision inch perfect. He plunged everyone's hearts from their chest into their throats with his timing. It was excellently worked. It was super violent and gnarly when it needed to be with the chair stuff. The continuity from Rampage into this was just absolutely... This is why they're the elite. Like There's no other or very few other acts in professional wrestling that can mine literally everything they've done previously to inform the drama of what comes next. Kenny Omega's relish 
with Marco stunned. It's like he didn't want to do it because if he did it, it would be finished. With that chair, it's like, oh, I really want to do this. It's going to be so satisfying to me. But the second I do it, it means it's done. But he finally just cracks this stupid little lad over the back. It looks like it hurts so much. Work, emotion, entertainment value, Brandon Cutler. What a knob. What a brilliant knobhead he is. He's on two contracts and he's earning every single cent by being a total jackass. And the beauty of it is that, again, the elite do the elite stuff. They've got all of their goons, their lackeys, their mercenaries, their goons, their goofs, and it's all over for Jurassic Express for now at least. And there's been, there was a rumbling before we got back to live crowds. And when we got back to live crowds, there was this, oh no, this is why you do loads of heat, because it's class, you get loads of noise. There was a rumbling that, oh, are they doing this too much? Is there too much interference on Dynamite? And it's all leading up to a goddamn steel cage match where they can't interfere because, of course, it is because this company can book. My only issue at this point, I think the Lucha Brothers are getting the match. And I'm sure I'll feel like I want the Lucha Brothers to win it at all out. But for now, I'm thinking, run this back. Run this back for the sake of goddamn justice. This is perfect wrestling telly. Yeah, perfect again. Said it a lot already in this podcast, but it was just perfect. Um, on the preview yesterday, I was like, I just asked for that, and you knew you'd get it. It's, it's dynamite, but like the, the one, the one two point nine 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 nine. Now they just put in about twelve, like, and every single one of them was better than the last, and every save seemed more impossible than the last. And Christ, how amazing is it? And this is harder than it looks, I think. Um, how amazing is it when you've got the baby face in the ring, and the bodies just don't stop jumping on the apron? And the baby face keeps punching them down. And then another one appears and they keep punching them down. And then they've actually got rid of them. And you turn around and the heel hasn't recovered yet. So you think you know, the baby face has actually done it. They've actually dealt with all this. And then it's just the way the ring is shot that thinks you know that they've all been dispatched. You've just seen them all like swatted away. And then Nick Jackson is there yet again for a save. It, like they use that so well to fool you into thinking, yeah, but this 2.99 is actually going to be a three. And you've seen a million wrestling matches and to still get you with something like that sublime absolutely sublime um i was dragged in i was just dragged completely in the young bucks were not going to lose the tag belts to the Jurassic express on an episode of dynamite that was not going to happen not in this company and i was dragged kicking and screaming away from this match wishing they had it just couldn't love this more kenny omega versus kenny omega versus his own hatred of marco stunt <laughs> is a thread is a feed as worthy of a Twitter thread as the Hangman page one at this point, because the loathing and resentment he has for Marco's son fills me with disgust and joy. I was reminded, like, the Elite were still baby faces theoretically, when he just brutalised him in that match, and he, like, he wanted him. And the other guy's like, leave it, it's not worth it. Just, <laughs> Give me some more of him, I hate him. Like, I want a title, stunt, I want stunt to get a title match before Omega loses that belt, because the things I would, like, want to see him do to him out of sheer, like, bloody cruelty. A chair from behind. <laughs> like his back was turned. Basically, like the reverse of the Bart Simpson chair with Homer in the bath. Yeah, but like the opposite one is fantastic. <laughs> God damn it, man! Aye, um, and like decent heat for the Christian match. The hook is the hook is that they both got belts now, isn't it? You know, like that's that's the that, that's where they found some proper heat in this. But the build up on one winged angel is decent as well. Match was amazing, man. The match was amazing. The match was amazing. I do love the continuation of the Kenny Omega Christian stuff. Christian Cage just totally battered away. Chance of CM Punk and yes. 
with this Connie piece of sh- line. Get on a t-shirt, say it every week because this build is really quite strong at this point. We got Britt Baker uh, backstage, Tony Schiavone, uh, and introducing her her new best friend, uh, Jamie Hayter. Uh, talked about Jamie Hayter talked about her and Baker going way back, and uh, and she said, "Ask Red Velvet and Chris Stanley what it's like at the end of my boots." Um, she dared Red Velvet to face her next week, and Baker said that, "Look, it's cute that you said you know red isn't my color, but we can see gold clearly isn't your color, and they're going to have some fun in Milwaukee, go Bucks." Uh, next week. And then we got a video package recapping the Matt Hardy and Orange Cassidy feud. Uh, Hardy said, oh, I'm not picking on Wheeler. You are an equal opportunity ass kicker. And if Orange continues to stick his nose in Hardy's business, he'll break it off his face. To which Orange Cassidy then replied, let's find out. Hamlet, you rolled your eyes as I was going through that. Yeah, I started watching a Leave the Memories Alone video of the first hour instead at this point. I'm just stuck with that until the main event. I, like... It's always Matt on these podcasts, and it's really not him. I think there's a bigger problem at play with some of the things that are featured in AW that don't deserve the prominence they get. Matt Hardy is one of them. He always ends up being the one that we pick on. We do put him over when he's good. There has been some flashes. Um, I think the Orange Cassidy match will absolutely have its moments. Matt Hardy is too intelligent a pro wrestler to not understand how to get everything great out of what Orange Cassidy does. And Orange Cassidy is beloved by crowds. So this isn't going to be some disaster, but I just groaned when we were getting the Matt Hardy vignette for like it, it was with relief when at least it was going to be on television but I groaned watching this and best friends are so rarely given material that feels like it's got enough meat on the bone that the promos feel important so I didn't particularly think Orange Cassidy's follow-up response was much cop either the match will be what it is mm. but it's just so it's such AW is so brilliant at putting over it's Big programs, and this like this problem extends to the women's division, which we'll get to later. It's big programs are considered such high status that when they cut to the low status stuff, the disparity is too big, and that happened here and would continue on for me for probably about the next forty minutes. It, nothing Matt Hardy is doing in this company is fundamentally awful. I don't even think it's that fundamentally boring. The Christian Cage stuff was good, really strong, inexplicably strong. Wild match with Darby Allen. Promo delivery isn't bad at all. It's just not it. Mm. Just not at the level of everything else. And because everything else is at that level, poor Matt Hardy just struggles for relevancy and interest. Just, I want to say, just before I end up slagging off everything for the next sort of 10, 15 minutes of this review, what we didn't talk about, which was fantastic, and really economical use of the time. Um, the Dante Martin vignette earlier mm-hmm. on, the example of when to do that right, because he's probably not going to get loads of matches now, but we knew last week was the star-making night. And just sometimes it kind of goes a little bit to waste because the guys end up, you have a night like that on Dynamite, then you go back to padding your record on Dark. And we know that's how it works, but then sometimes you're allowed to forget. And I think that vignette was the perfect follow-up. Even if he does go back to padding his record out on Dark, I don't think people will forget now because you've had the match and then you've had the build on top of it afterwards. That was really great. So they can do this really well. I just think Matt Hardy and Orange Cassidy is the wrong focus. Well, Paul White was next. Uh, he was brought out to the <laughs> by Tony Schiavone. Uh, and uh, Schiavone thanked uh, White for coming to his aid last week. And Paul White said, I'll be honest, um, you're welcome. But also, God damn, it feels good to be back in a ring. Uh, he had an announcement, but he was un- interrupted by QT Marshall, who was joined by uh, Aaron Solo and 
God, he looks so good. Nick Comarotto. Uh, I liked his response as well. Houston, we have a problem. Um, he said, look, Paul, there's a reason why you were hired as an announcer, not as a wrestler. And he put loads of pictures of his arse up on the screen, basically, and some x-rays uh, of him. Just, uh, it is genuinely astonishing what, you know, how Paul White continues to carry himself, considering the amazing major surgeries he's gone through. They showed the the, the hip um, the things they've had fitted. They showed all the, the horrific scars he's got. But White well, said, I'm not embarrassed. You're an idiot, basically. And I've spoken to Sweet TK, and we are having a match, you and me, at All Out. Mixed emotions about this, but I was reassured by Andy Murray on the news, Sige. If he's just fat as QT Marshall, who tries to run away from him for five minutes and then just gets choke slammed, I'd be all right with it. But what did you, as someone, you know, who's tempered his response when people, when anyone from WWE has been brought in, what did you think of this? Big shows on my anti-Mount Rushmore. We've been through this before. This was a... Mount Rushmore? You mean more like Mount Rushmore? Yeah. Sorry, carry on. You're such a wanker. Um, you are, like you are. Um, oh God, I hate you. <laughs> Here's the thing. Paul White's on my uh, Mount Rush list. <laughs> this was a very, very WWE segment. But let's put things into perspective. This ran long. It wasn't bad. And look what it's building towards. We've had significant or at least not inconsiderable issues with AEW pay-per-views don't meet the hype because they're often quite bloated. Moments of iconic, world-class, timeless, blow-away brilliance, but the experience can sometimes drag a bit. Paul White versus QT Marshall is going to be a fun four-minute buffer between the things that people are really intensely, emotionally invested in that will require a lot of that investment by going long. This passable, not unentertaining segment function to build towards something that we've needed to happen for quite some time. And I thought Paul White, who I have never really liked, genuinely felt a bit like the guy that people said he's always been in real life, that Vince McMahon just simply could never be. Witty, self-deprecating giant who was just good enough, given that this is week two of the build, who was just good enough at just measuring, slowly turning the dial on that menace. There were various moments where I thought, he's a big scary giant who could actually mess someone up, but they haven't delivered it yet. I think it was halfway elegant stuff that, if it got dropped like a stone, I wouldn't care less, but it was passable, and I got a glimpse of the Paul White that can work in this role. But the delivery was really good. I just don't care about this that much. I hate pretty much all of this. I didn't think his delivery was good at all. I thought Paul White came across as cliched and irritating. I thought this was like as close as, probably not, there's probably another example, but this felt as close as AW have ever come to like those moments when they would make the rock rub his goosebumps rather than just being the rock. Like, God, this is so great. You guys, it's like, I don't think I want to see you have this moment. I want to see somebody else have this moment because you've had loads of moments. Um, I know, because this is a pro wrestling company with with its best will in the world, that it can't always be a meritocracy, but I don't like to see the veneer of that lifted. 
that happened here. Keaton Marshall versus Paul White is not a pay-per-view match, even if it exists. If you're if you're okay, like and I look, I completely understand Murray's take, Sidgwick has shared it. It's bargaining, is what it is. Like if you if it's there to be a buffer match, then you're not into it for the narrative reasons or the stakes or the fun of seeing Keaton Marshall get decked. It's like, well, we need this because it's you know, these pay-per-views probably are in need of a diva's piss break of all of olden days or whatever it is. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I think I disagree, quite honestly. Like, find a find a better way, like, make one of your hot matches shorter and uh, stick a vignette in there or stick a, like, find something beyond, a, like, a match like this. There's a lot of TV space now for a, a big show QT Marshall match. Like, there's a rampage for it, you know? Like, I I think I, I'm okay with it, I guess. As I'm, I, I don't feel good about Paul White wrestling for any reason, even if there's something cool like the go-go punch-out payoff. You know, the WMD versus his shot to the stomach is something I would like to see. So there is, I'm not saying there isn't a role occasionally for Paul White, but it's, I felt it when he signed and I feel it now. I don't want to see him wrestle. It's a weird signing for a commentator, but it's fine if he's there. It's, you know, if, if, you, if you've got this exact problem at full gear, oh, we, we kind of, we need something in the middle to like, just let the fans calm down and that. Would you be campaigning for Mark Henry to come and have a match? I just... bargaining? No, I, I think... I, I just like I didn't think the segment was any good, and I just think that the whole point of AEW as a vehicle, like everything we've talked about in the last hour, is just about how it makes you feel. And I, like I couldn't feel any less for this. I don't like either of these two. And like the best I'll say is like Guti Marshall owning as much as he can what his job is in AEW. Like oh, I had a word with the guys in the truck. Keith Mitchell get the pictures up. I've got like access that sort of thing. That's like at least a character trait. But the rest, I just felt it was like, you know, I, I know that there's a lot of pandering to mates and nepotism that goes on in the company. I just don't want to see it. What would you do with the pay-per-view then? Um, this is a genuine question because this has been a fundamental thing that yeah. even going back to Double or Nothing 2019, as wonderful and iconic as it was, there was a sense of, oh, it's gone 20 minutes too long. Or it could have been a bit more disciplined with the match length. Is it as simple as shaving three minutes off virtually all of the under and mid card? I do think that, yeah. I think whatever, do it very well. Whatever they're currently or thinking, did it very well. Yeah, whatever they're currently thinking of for something like Pack versus Andrade, for example, shave five minutes off it. Like whatever match time they've got in mind, you could probably shave five minutes off it. Then it's not an easy job. I'm not saying this is a kind of. I just do that instead. I just I, like Paul White and Keaton Marshall as the buffer. I think it's one way of doing it. It's just not the way that I would pick. I don't think people are going to be into this for the, maybe I'm maybe I'm going to prove wrong. The night's going to be super hot and people are going to go wild for the choke slam because sometimes you see what you want to see. And I wasn't seeing this beloved legendary figure in Paul White. I was seeing like a jobs for the boys role for somebody that we were told was going to be a cop. Like when he arrived, there was genuine worry amongst good faith fans. Oh, but he's not going to wrestle, is he? And now, now we're here. Now that's actually happening. When he arrived in the copy of the press release, it was confirmed that he was going to compete at some point. Yeah, and nobody wanted that. I didn't want it. Yeah. It's he was menacing, quite self-deprecating. I like the big beautiful ass line. Mm. We're not going to agree on this. Let's move on. Uh, Jade Cargill and Mark Sterling got a promo next. Uh, they talked about being impressed by Kira Hogan on Dark, so she's going to get murdered uh, by Cargill on Rampage. Basically, Cargill said, "Oh, it's good to see how Miro treated uh, Fuego del Sol last Friday. So I'll just do the same to Kira Hogan on Friday. Good. Can't wait to see Jay Cargill back in the ring. Still my pick for that Casino Battle Royale thing uh, that's coming up uh, all out, of course. Uh, and then we got Tony Schiavone backstage with the Elite. 
But Tony Schwartz just furious with the elite, obviously cutting all these corners and helping the Young Bucks uh, retain their tag titles. And he announces, yeah, everyone else has kind of had enough. We're going to have a tag team title eliminator tournament. Uh, it's going to be Jurassic Express, Private Party. Those two are going to face off on Rampage this week. Uh, Varsity Blondes and uh, the people who are probably going to win this tournament, Lucha Bros, uh, all facing off. The winners will face the Young Bucks at All Out, as we alluded to, in a steel cage. Great stuff that we talked about a bit earlier. And then we had Taz and Hook in the ring. They bring out FTW champion Ricky Stocks does his big entrance uh, on the ramp. And he says, let's bring out Brian Cage. Let's have a chat. They weren't having a match. They changed everything after we did our preview yesterday, basically. Uh, but the camera cuts backstage and he's like, oh, no. Brian Cage has been laid out by um, Powerhouse Hobbs. But then Cage pops up, starts brawling with Hobbs and Team Taz go, oh, crap. But sort this out and run off. And that was that. Bit of a weird one, this Hamlet. That's rubbish. Hobbs dungarees was the best thing about this whole thing. <laughs> I didn't get any. I can't. I still can't work out what they thought this would look like if this was if this went completely as planned. Really bad. It either went live and it was rubbish. Or it was a terrible pre-tape and they should have shot it again. But like Brian Cage making his own comeback from an ambush felt weird um, as a way to like expose the heels as as clowns as comedy fools here. Um, anticlimactic. Uh, it kind of made. It's okay for Ricky Starks to look like a goof from time to time because he's a villain and he's in the heel stable and he's still young and there's time for him to be the coolest guy in the room and an idiot. The Rock showed plenty of like arse when he was in the nation. Um, but this lacked any drama. Like it felt like just a, it felt like a dead issue that then they also didn't apply much thought to how they would execute it on the show. I couldn't work out why it was as rubbish as it was. Even this, like we weren't terribly excited about the match in the preview. But the match, you assume, would have at least had a bit more narrative heft to it. Like, I don't even know what they were swinging for, but this was a miss. I think what they were trying to do, and I didn't like this much either. In fact, it's a bit of a shame what's happened to Team Taz um, following that first match between Starks and Cage because it's just been sort of a, a non-issue, something that I don't really care about, um, something that hasn't been executed particularly well. Um this was an attempt at an ambush. The idea being that Brian Cage is simply too strong, too much of a big, muscly baby face, worthy of your support and unhinged jaw to get beaten up by one man, no matter how big. Um, it just doesn't jump off the page. It lacks a spark. It's hard to invest emotionally in someone who doesn't have so much charisma or sympathy. So you're relying to get Brian Cage over as a baby face for him to do these like unbelievable things. And all these unbelievable things that he can't do at this point appear to be contained exclusively to the ring. Building angles and episodic TV storylines around him feel like just a completely wrong approach at this point. He's not a TV star as Brian Cage. If you're going to strip every criticism down to that core feeling He's not a TV star. He can't really promo well. Um, I don't know how you address this. Put him back in Team Taz. And just make <laughs> Team Taz great again. I hate <laughs> using that phrase, by the way. Just to clear up any confusion, Donald Trump is an artistic arsenal. God bless you. God bless me. God bless you. God bless God bless me. God bless Team Taz. Uh, <laughs> Put a little hush and keep Don't drop that one either. She'd be great in it. 
Death Triangle are backstage. Um, they're obviously Lucha Bros going to be competing in the Dead Tag Team uh, Eliminator Tournament. Uh, Pax facing Andrade El Idolo uh, at All Out. Pack was happy that Andrade had the bollocks to face him at All Out, and uh, Pack reminded him that All Out is the same place where he beat Kenny Omega on two weeks' notice. Love all that. In come Andrade and Chavo. And Andrade says Pac's got to agree to their conditions before they can have their match. Just a huge pile of paper gets handed over. And Chavo says, it doesn't matter. Even if you Lucha Bros do win the tournament, you'll never be champions as long as you work for Pac. What do you think, Hamlet? Bollocks was funny. The rest was just bollocks. A, non- <laughs> a nonsense and foolishness featuring a big group of losers on my screen on the show that has Elite and the logo in the background. This is where Sidgwick's got me back to rights because I do just like, where's my All Elite? Oh, there he is. It's the one guy in the middle. It's Pac. Everybody else sucks. Like the Lucha Brothers as pawns in this weird game is crap and grim. Put him in the cage with the Young Bucks and let him just be amazing. Um, Andrade is still talking, even though they are paying Chavo Guerrero a wage to be his mouthpiece. Don't get that. The physical comedy undermines what this match is and what it needs to be, which is a banger to prove that Andrade has still got it because everybody's worried that he hasn't. He hasn't. Ironically, the only good thing about this entire segment was bollocks because that's what the rest of this was. I like Pac saying, find the bollocks. And as a Geordie, I like him saying, telt. I'm here <laughs> America. I tell you, I tell you. Get in. Pac's one of our own. Um, Alex Abraham is having to be held back because he was enraged. You can hold him back. You can keep him in the back and you can put him on commentary because he makes Death Triangle, who used to be this incredibly cool and dangerous looking unit, seem so lame. This whole thing is so lame. Clearly, Andrade's stipulations are that should he defeat Pac, he gets Lucha Brothers in the package. Um, is it just written in really big font? What else? Uh, <laughs> like it's just put it on a post it. That's the stip. <laughs> Look, this storyline is reeked. It is. It feels like they are doing American telly story telling for the sake of it. Mm. It's like, can you not just simplify this? Does it need to be this episodic week to week concern of, oh God, have they like switched out the limo drivers and gone to the wrong state this week? I mean, what a load of bollocks. Get to the point. And the worst thing is, the point is, ugh. I've got great reservations about Pac versus Andrade. Everyone thinks, oh, Pac's great. Andrade was great in 2018. This is going to bang. Is it? Andrade needs to be grabbed by the scruff of the neck to go to three and three quarter stars generously at this stage of his career. Pack isn't really, he's, a, he's one of the best in the world, but he likes to take it slow. He really likes to build his matches, and there are certain matches he works that are really, really deliberately paced before they crack up. He likes the deliberate movements to make everything else he does subsequently feel like really major. I think Andrade is going to go, class, don't have to move much. <laughs> he's going to have to bloody get a rocket lit up his arse. I've got worries about Pack versus Andrade. What a state of affairs. Uh, we got Penelope Ford versus Thunder Rose, an ex-massive reaction for Thunder Rosa, understandably. Uh, and uh, Rosa, uh, they're both doing incredibly well in the rankings, of course. Rosa was the one who emerged victorious from this one uh, early on. Uh, she goes for the Fire Thunder driver, Ford counters and goes for the motor lock. Um, Ford turns 
uh, all into the pinning predicament, but Rosa kicks out and gets a single leg crab and Ford has to get it to the ropes. Rosa eventually spins around, hits a Death Valley driver for a two count. Ford once again gets the motor lock, but Rosa fights out of it, gets her own sort of modified sleeper and gets the submission victory. Looks like Thunder Rosa could be on the cards next for Britt Baker, Michael Sidgwick, but... What an incredible reaction again to Thunder Rosa and the, the right person victorious here. Yeah, that was the extent to which this was in any way good. I'm not going to bury the work. I thought some of the work was really good. The transitions were nice. They deliberately, at this point, made me not care about it by positioning it yet again in the slot that it was in. It was the thing that you were meant to cool down for ahead of the big main event between MGF and Jericho. These women continue to be marginalised under-pushed. And it's such a shame because I genuinely thought about three or four months ago it was on track to really become something this AEW Women's Division. It's not happening. They don't kind of want it to happen, I suspect, on this evidence. Fair bloody play the Penelope Ford for working that match and that level of match um, without a ring gear. Um, thought I was more impressed by that than I was. This felt sad watching this. Just thought it was an afterthought. I felt like I was given no reason to care much about it. The one interesting wrinkle is that Thunder Roses had two wins on Dynamite, which is so much, so much more than most of the women. In parallel, Chris Statlander's getting these wins. But Baker mentioned Chris Statlander. I don't know what the direction is. I would love to see Thunder Roses versus Statlander because at, at long last, it would be a women's title match with stakes, a women's match with stakes that isn't a title match. But uh, yeah, it's just a bit of a glum experience watching this for no fault through no fault sorry of the uh, two wrestlers involved yeah I think the quality of the work in this match was why I found myself getting annoyed about this problem for the first time in quite a while um, because I think tr- like we've tried we, to put it over when it's gone well or someone needs a bit, a bit more patience this year with what we've seen as attempted maybe developments of the women's division but the work was of such a decent standard here that the fact it was playing out to virtually no heat, apart from when Thunder Rosa got like a hometown pop or like a couple of moments that were for her fire-ups, she was literally dressing the flag man. You know, they get this hometown yeah. stuff right. So I'm not saying it's like a free free hit, but you, you're going to get that response because this company knows how to do that. Um, it's feeling like the game's rigged against the women because, you know, once upon a time it was, well, the roster's so threadbare that we can't justify them putting them out there and you're having somebody making huge mistakes. And then you have the pandemic where it's like, well, the roster's still threadbare and the the ones that we do have are too green, so they can't go out for this. So they've got to go out in short matches there and it's it's more just like a test run for them. It's like a nice practice match, but, you know, they're not drawing, so we can't give them much more than that. And now we're back in front of crowds. The roster gets more and more stacked and yet they're not telling enough stories that the matches play out to no heat. So this objectively good work is a subjectively a pretty, pretty lousy experience because the crowd aren't coming up for the right bits because they're not being asked to ever really um it's it, it's not on and it's like the it, if there were steps being taken i feel like they've all been reversed in recent times like i don't want i don't ever want it to come across like we're making excuses for them i think sometimes there's been, there's been good and bad faith debate i'm sure i've been guilty of both since AEW was born about this division but there was something particularly telling about this one. Probably was because of the quality of the work. They're deserving like a great deal more better than they're getting. And it does affect, like, it's a vibe thing. It comes up, like, AEW is so much about the vibe and the energy and the joy of it all. And they see, like, there's too much of a disconnect between this and the joy that you feel about the other stuff on the card. 
series of uh, backstage promos next. Uh, Arn and Brock Anderson talking uh, about, well, they showed a, a history of Malachi Black and what he's done to, to Arn and to Cody, of course. Um, Arn said he's emotional. And um, when Malachi Black appeared, he turned their world upside down. But Brock uh, Anderson, his son, has insisted on a match with Malachi Black next week. Good luck. Um, he said... Uh, Arn had warned him that he was going to hurt him. And Brock said, with, with all due, due respect, I'm not asking. I like this from, from Brock Anderson. Bollocks on Brock Anderson. Class. It was yeah. class. It was genuinely on a really low-key level class, this. Giving himself some agency. Could not look less like a son in this role. <laughs> uh, Miro, cut a little promo. Uh, says he's saying he didn't forgive Fuego del Sol for accept, accepting something he felt entitled to. He serves God every day and his hot wife every <laughs> nights and then he said the words we all look forward to hearing he said eddie kingston the redeemer wants to talk and we all rubbed our hands together with glee but let's get to this john moxley promo i'm not going to do it justice go and watch it on twitter or on youtube or watch the whole show back if you want because oh my word he uh he said he'd been thinking about everyone coming to aw ran through all the top stars (laughs) obliterated all of them Hangman Page, Christian Cage, the elite. Uh, he talked about being the guy who's carried the company all through these uncertain times. And now it's about time to send a message about the food chain in AEW. He's going to main event Rampage against Daniel Garcia. And, oh, the look in his eyes when he said, Garcia, oh, you should ask yourself if, if this is what you really want, because this ain't no joke. Bloody hell, Sige. He wasn't cutting a promo on Daniel Garcia here. He was going to promo on goddamn CM Punk. John Moxley now, MGF, Darby Allen, Kenny Omega are all teasing him coming, them wanting a fight with him. I want him to fight everyone. I want to do it right now. This is irresistible. But Hamlet, floor's yours. I know how much you love this. Jesus Christ. I could not get enough of every single second of this promo. Um, right. I, Hangman Page, yes, it's the best story in wrestling. It's maybe one of the best stories ever. This appealed to my base instincts where I was like, beat him, call him an emo bitch. I said, he's like, so I'm riding in the car, I'm going to like drink him under the table and beat his ass. And I was suddenly like, yeah, beat his whinging ass. Screw the dark (laughs) order. Screw the tears. Like just, and again, it's all obviously in service of a tweener for now and a heel for later. Lining up seven or eight, and they're not just matches for Dynamite or Rampage. They're money programs, potentially money drawing programs, because that's who John Moxley is. Um, shades of Bret Hart, and that's never not an amazing sentence. When Bret Hart came back in 1997 and Steve Austin facilitated his heel turn, one of the things was, seems like things have changed. It's like, I'll scratch your back, you stab mine. John Moxley, for the first time, has had a bit of a moan that he can carry this company through the hardest period in wrestling history. That line was overdue, but what a time to deliver it. Why are you cheering for this guy? Why are you cheering for this guy? Why are you excited about CM Punk? Why is Christian getting titles? Like, look what happened last year. I was carrying I was carrying the whole world on my back. You all needed me. What a great way to use that ahead of turning this character heel because he should be pissed off. He should be so resentful. Like, we should still be bending over like we were last year for John Moxley because he's absolutely a hero, but he's getting gradually more pissed off. He's not getting enough sleep at home. And that's very, very relatable. Um, the best good guy has gone bad and a lot of people are going to pay and it's going to be unbelievable. Like this promo, like I'm not, I don't think this is hyperbole. This minute of television, whatever it was, was worth millions of dollars to AW. 
in pay-per-views, in numbers that you can sell to the TBS and TNT executives because how much did he set up here and not a second of it felt fake. This felt like he's been waiting to scream this for about a month and that's where all the anger's been bottled up when you're seeing him coming out and he's a bit more like feistier than usual. He's not got that like wry smile anymore when he's delivering his, his pissed off message. Like this has been waiting to burst out of him and he's just had enough. <laughs> God damn it. This was absolutely incredible. One of it, like one of John Moxley's best ever promos and think of the grounds that covers. Put the belt on him. Sage, anything else you want to add? Um, just unbelievable. What a versatile, incredible, realistic, convincing, badass. These the, John Moxie's the best. And this is a really nice reminder of that fact. And again, it's just this company can do no wrong at the minute. You think about all the hype, the incoming names. The best thing is that they're an accompaniment. You do not need them. You could not sign them if you like. Please sign them. It would be awesome. We could, <laughs> in a parallel universe, very close to our own, in which they don't come. They don't fancy it. This version of Hang- uh, John Moxley going up against Hangman Page at Revolution after Page wins at full gear. Money. Total money. Like, it's just class. He's an unbelievable promo, man. Unfortunately, Hangman Page, when he wins the title, is going to drop it to the man who is undefeated in AEW singles matches. Amongst he did. Uh, and he was next. MJF, uh, the final labour of Jericho. Jericho came out to utter silence, of course, as per uh, MJF stipulations. But the crowd, well done, Houston. You nailed it. They sang along to, to Judas, despite the fact there was no music there. And... I really enjoyed this match as well, particularly, obviously, the spot where MJF apes Chris Jericho, uh, sends him into the barricade and grabs the ringside camera, flips off everyone in the arena, only to turn around and Jericho's got to his feet, just twats the camera. That's a gift that has done the rounds all over Twitter this morning. Uh, and he does his same spot, obviously. Um, MJF is targeting Chris Jericho's arm throughout this match. Uh, Jericho, though, fights back, takes him down, chops him, uh, hits a lion salt for a near fall, keeps up the offense, uh, hits him in the corner, takes MJF to the top rope, does the old 10 punches gimmick and hits a top rope hurricane runner again for a near fall. MJF, though, kicks out, immediately locks on his uh, salt of the earth armbar submission. Jericho finally rolls through, gets him in the walls, but MJF counters it and hits an up kick to, to break out of it all. And uh, they traded punches in the center of the ring. MJF, again, targeting Jericho's arm snaps it over the top rope and he hits a heat seeker for a near fall on that. MJF gets the referee. Jericho's got him waist locked. So MJF hits a low blow when the referee couldn't see it and puts Chris Jericho in the lion tamer. The crowd is screaming for Jericho to make the ropes and Jericho finally makes it there. So MJF decides bollocks to this. I'm getting the beautiful diamond ring. And goes to goes to twat Jericho with it, but the official stops him. That allows Jericho, whilst the official is dealing with that and getting rid of the ring, to uh, get Floyd the bat, hits MJF with it. Obviously, muscle memory goes for the Judas effect, stops himself, but that hesitation allows MJF, as we talked about in the preview yesterday, to hit his own Judas effect, but he doesn't want to pin him. He wants to submit Chris Jericho. He locks on Salt of the Earth. Jericho tries to fight out of it, but MJF keeps it there forces Chris Jericho to tap. 
as MJF said on Twitter, it's his throne now. I really like this. And I know this, I think this divided your opinion. So I'm going to start with Sige and then conclude with you, Hamlet. Sige, oh, he's done it. MJF's done it. Fantastic. Yes, I love this match. I loved watching a white, hot crowd invest in the story they told, which I thought was tremendously told in terms of the vision and the execution of it. There were worries ahead of the match that Chris Jericho maybe had been working far too often for the physical state that he finds himself in in 2021. And quite naturally, Christ Almighty, he's 50, he's been doing this for years. I thought the execution of a really elegant, perfectly measured story was excellent. But this crowd, after almost a full calendar year of explicit on-screen storytelling in loads of different teasers ahead of it before it actually became the direction after All Out 2020, the night after when the limousines first met. It was a victory in an age of just content, regurgitated content, executives like hours and thumbnails, irrespective of what that content is. WWE's record revenue streams aren't driven by a top star who everybody loves, or loves to hate, they are driven by the sheer amount of hours that WWE can sell them. It's a genuinely despairing time, at least in that company, to be a pro wrestling fan. This was the total opposite of that. The amount of hours they've put into thinking about the story were rewarded magnificently with a white-hot atmosphere. Like, they were so bang into this. And it wasn't just the Judas thing, which they did so well to pull off. 5,000 Texans. Incredibly, they pulled it off. But what I loved about the match was that it was just so pure and simple, not too overambitious in terms of when to do it. Like the, just one little moment that I loved was the Fujiwara armbar and then into the backslide. Like a bit so much on that near fall. Yeah. They measured that perfectly. Now, there are four moments I want to point out that general take was this is just wonderful babyface versus heel storytelling that the crowd completely ate up. The arm work was tremendous throughout. Chris Jericho's selling was great throughout. There are four moments I want to point out. The whole idea is that the theme of the story is that MGF has taken Chris Jericho's throne. It illustrates how great MGF is already that it never once felt like, you know, the dreaded, oh, he's the next Chris Jericho tag, uh, guy, that tag. No one ever becomes the next anything. And yet they played with that throughout. He did the camera thing. He did the Judas effect. And in the end, he's not the next Chris Jericho. He doesn't want to be the next Chris Jericho. He just wants to sit where Chris Jericho sat and he wins with his own move. I thought this was absolutely class. I can understand why people weren't that into it as this exhilarating, dramatic contest. But I just thought it was so well thought out. It was the perfect end, the bold, committed end to a long-term story that really has been so dedicated and lovingly crafted. I was just really happy watching the end of this, even though MGF's a little tosser. <laughs> yeah, I was lower on the match, but as high on the headlines, I think. Um, I'd, I'd like, I just found it dragged a little bit and it's, it's really weird I, I can never quite decide where to balance criticisms in ring wise of Chris Jericho because he is of an advancing age for a pro wrestler to be working this style but then you know 
this is all by his choice and his doing. And you, you we're aware, at least theoretically, of the power he has over his own character and stories. And you imagine the stroke he's got to be able to pretty much do whatever he wants. And this is what he wants to do is wrestle five times in five weeks and all these different matches and really push himself. So I feel like it's open to be critical. You know, I think like he's maybe not got the, it's a conditioning thing probably um, to go at the pace he would like to every week that effectively tells the stories he wants to tell. All that being said, it was certainly good enough I just, it didn't, I'm glad it was never on pay-per-view. I think this would have died on a pay-per-view compared to being a television main event. I think it fit that profile more so. Um, and I loved the finish. I really, really loved the finish. Not just in the execution of the Judas effect stipulation, um, which I did see a, a bit of immediate backlash for. It's like, well, he used the bat while the referee's back was turned. So why couldn't he have used the Judas effect? It's like, well, isn't one thing a wrestling rule and one thing an MJF rule? Mm. You know, you're contravening M- No matter what the referee sees, if you use it, then you're not good because that was what MJF says. Maybe I'm being too generous there, but I feel like that, that'll be their logic for it internally. My take on it was, if you're Chris Jericho and you're preparing for this match and you know you can't use the Judas effect, you've drilled that into your head and when he finally, on impulse, decides to do it, you think, I can't do it. doesn't matter if there's a ref there or anything like that. Like, I just think that would be your trained impulse that you've drilled into yourself. Yeah, well, yeah, it was, um, he gets a lot of stick these days, rightfully so, but it was borrowed from a really good Shawn Michaels finish. I think it was against Randy Orton when he couldn't mm. use the sweet tune music. He's halfway through uncorking it and then he has to stop and it, that one second gets RKO'd and they pretty much apply that here. Best use of it, you know. Um, I, I loved Dynamite going off the air. All this euphoria from the really, really good stuff. But it goes off the air with the, like, it, I will say this, for a story that had as many troughs as it had peaks, this has been the making of MJF. So I think at this point, you can probably call it a success. I've been as critical as anybody of where I think they've gone pretty wrong with the pinnacle and the inner circle. But this has definitely been a very, very helpful angle for MJF. It's like now we're coming out the other side of it. He feels a bigger star than he was before. We will remember how Chris Jericho made him and how the storyline was a kind of a bit of a reckoning for the character um, to progress beyond being a bit of a, like a troll heel as he was in the Moxley programme. Good as that was, this has been a, a different kind of MJF that I think has really helped and opened him up to, it's going to open him up to further feuds. You know, it's going to broaden his character's horizons. So lots and lots of uh, success stories that have come from this. Uh, the match, it, it didn't hit the heights that I thought it could have done. Um, but it wasn't for the want of both of them trying, I think. Um, and we've definitely got where we needed to. MJF, theoretically, to kind of like build on what Cedric was saying about the Moxley promo, um, MJF is just somebody else that feels like, well, his business is tended to. So he could come out and say what we're all thinking about, who we know is going to show up on Friday, and he could be the guy, you know, and just as, just as viable as an opponent for CM Punk, having just wrapped up his business with Chris Jericho. I'm often accused of reaching on Twitter, I need to reach some grass. I know the idea some of them would genuinely be thick enough to think you'd have to reach up to touch them as well. <laughs> reach grass. Go to your ceiling and reach grass. <laughs> but on the road to, MGF said, plural, I'm tired of these veterans. So maybe there's a hint towards CM Punk. But again, the measure of this feud, and now that it's um, been brought to a close, is that MGF against Punk and Danielson, he is at least in the top three of the names that you want to see mix it up with those two. 
Well, speaking of teasers, maybe, maybe, just maybe, sooner rather than later, the three of us will be gathered here today to, to talk about maybe what to expect from CM Punk's AEW debut. But let us know your thoughts on AEW Dynamite on Twitter at WhatCultureWWE. Watch, they can follow all three of us. You can follow Michael Hamflit at... Michael Hamflit. You can follow Michael Sidgwick at... M. Sidgwick. You can follow me at Adam Wilborn. Follow us all at WhatCultureWWE, as I said. Make sure you subscribe to what Culture Wrestling for daily wrestling podcasts, including, I don't know, maybe a Get the Table, all about... What to expect from CM Punk's AEW debut? Oh, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? Maybe, maybe that'll happen. Uh, and of course, our preview of AEW Rampage tomorrow and any other stuff that WWE is doing or whatever. Uh, right. Uh, for now, this has been the AEW Dynamite Review. My thanks to the Dadly Boys. Thank you for joining us. And we will see you soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.